Um, so first, again, being the five o'clock hour, I want to thank everybody for coming to this episode of Mike Drop. Got a great guest on today, a fan favorite, Chuck Rocha. Um, you all know him, hopefully from the Latino Vote podcast. He and I have been coordinating a lot of projects lately, a lot of exciting things to come. But I wanted to invite him here to the call and app because we are going to be taking some of your questions. And I thought he would be particularly interesting on the issues that we're going to be covering today. So. Um, with that, let me just say um, th- this is an exciting new app. I've had a great time with it. It allows me to be as engaging as I possibly can. I've always made that commitment to those of you who follow me on social media. I try to answer questions a lot more than most folks do, and this seemed like the perfect opportunity to tackle the issues of the day in a way where I could answer those questions from the perspective of a political professional. Um, Colin, th- this podcast, Mic Drop Show, is available um, on Apple, on Spotify, um, and if you could, uh, if you're finding the conversation interesting, you can go ahead and also share the fact uh, on social media, Twitter specifically, uh, that we're in the middle of the conversation. If you share it during, uh, during, during our talk, it gives a really good opportunity to grow the crowd, get more people engaged and more, more questions answered, and it kind of helps the flow of the discussion. So before we get started, I do want to mention um, at any time you can kind of uh, j- join into the uh, queue. You'll see that bottom, bottom right hand, I think. Um, the ability to ask questions, jump into the queue. I'll uh, take them in order as they come up. If you're a little bit nervous, a little bit scared of jumping onto a live app and asking the questions, feel free to submit them on the little chat there. Uh, you'll see the little question box. If you, if you press that, you can ask questions our level best to follow um, the order that they come in and, and be mindful of questions so that we're getting them in the written form too. But Go ahead and jump in. There's nothing to be afraid of. I'll protect you from Chuck. He's really harmless. Uh, he looks a little threatening. Looks a little scary, but he's actually he's actually kind of harmless. So, uh, <laughs> um, we're gonna cover we're gonna cover two two big topics today. Uh, we're gonna cover California and and cover Texas. And and Chuck, I think that's that's why you're perfect for today. Um, let me start with the Texas stuff. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bleed into the, the, the California stuff, and then we'll just start some Q&A, and we'll jump, we'll jump right into it, okay? Because there's a lot of questions. People on social media um, definitely have opinions on these topics. But the first, uh, first issue I want to tackle is this Texas uh, politics project. Uh, new polling out today. And this is a good outfit. I feel really, really confident. Um, as many of you know, I'm very picky. I'm really picky about the polls that I put confidence in and say this is being really well done. This is really well done. Okay, the numbers here on what the Texas Politics Project are putting out are stuff that I would have a very high degree of confidence in. It comes out uh, with the University of Texas in partnership with the, the Texas Politics Project. They've got a really healthy sample size. They pull 1,200 registered voters. They do it with a mix of, of online and, uh, and, and mobile phones and even a few landline calls. You're getting the right mix. They've got the right demographics. They've got a deep sample I, I like it. I've, I've, I've got confidence in it. Uh, these are some of the folks that we're looking when they're looking at Hispanic voters. They're looking at generational variances, which if you're testing Hispanic voters and you're not looking at generational variances, well, by God, you're probably not, you're not looking in the right space and your data is going to be really skewed. So, again, I, you, know, you, you get Mike Madrid's stamp of approval, which is a, which is a pretty big deal in my mind. And the numbers um, show a couple of things that I want to talk about. Um, some people are saying this is great news for Beto. Some people are, are saying it's, this is not so great news. I want to talk about those. and I want to you know, visit with Chuck on this because this is where he's from, folks. This is where he was born and raised. This is where he cut his teeth, and he knows Texas as well as anybody. So the, the, the brief overview, the big picture is uh, Texans by a wide margin are saying that they've got a really negative view of not only the economy, 53% said their personal economic situation is worse than a year ago. 58% said the Texas economy is worse than a year ago. 73% say the national economy is worse than a year ago. These are bad, bad numbers. There's just no way to get around it. And with bad numbers on the economy, usually, 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 let me underscore it one more time, usually mean bad news or spell bad news for the party in power. I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. And we're going to get a little bit into, into why that is. Okay, but there's no question. Texans aren't feeling good about where things are going. 73% nationally. Bad, bad numbers for Biden. Biden's numbers are way, way underwater. No surprise it's Texas, but continue to show this really low range 
uh, for the president. Now, a couple of things that are really fascinating, though. Um, if you look at the race between Abbott and Beto O'Rourke, Greg Abbott's polling at 45%. Beto O'Rourke comes in at 39%. Uh, this, pre- this poll previously back in December had Beto down 15 And that's what you're starting to hear a lot of folks suggest. Okay, he's closing the gap. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. And we'll talk about that. The bigger, the bigger concerns that I have with Beto is it, it, he's got two challenges in what I would consider the fundamentals of the race. And that is he still has this persistent six-point gap. He's not closing it beyond six points. He's never been within a six-point range in the entirety of this election cycle. Now, can that close? Sure it can. Okay, sure it can. Vox ran an article today showing that George W. Bush was down 7.6 to Ann Richards at the exact same time in the race and ended up coming and beating her by a pretty good margin, pretty good thumping. Okay, this is in the 94 cycle. Now, Texas, like the rest of the country, is a very different place. But yes, these things do happen. Yes, the fortunes can change. Bigger issue, bigger problem, bigger problem I see for Bethel. He's never polled anything higher than 43% on any public-facing poll. Most of his numbers sit in the 39 to 41% range. He's got this ceiling that he cannot break through, and he's got some trouble, and it doesn't seem to be working for him. And I, I, just, I just keep looking at, at these two factors, none of which has changed in the past six, seven months, whether the numbers were bad for the Democrats, the numbers were good for the Democrats. Do you throw abortion into the mix? Uvalde, of course, is a, you know, a, a city well-known to Texans. Do you throw that into the mix? You throw the Jan 6 stuff into the mix. You throw everything into the mix, and Beto's still got the six-point gap, and he can't break through this low 40s range. 10%, of course, undecided. Um, that's, the, that's, that's my setup, Chuck. I want you to tell me what, what your guts tells you, what you're seeing and what you're hearing from folks on the ground in Texas about the Beto campaign and what the prospects are for pulling this race out. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me. And also thanks for all the triggers in your Mike Madrid wind-up that got my eye twitching when you talked about my sister, Ann Richards. Uh, My first campaign as a young organizer in East Texas was that 94 race with Ann Richards, and uh, I have a lot of scars that have led 33 years later, 32 years later, to this moment where I would be talking about it again. Uh, Texas is a lot different than it was then. Not saying that it's the same now. Uh, Millions and millions of more people have moved there. The state is way more diverse. But at the end of the day, that was back when there were still other statewide elected Democrats. And there has not been any uh, since I have had hair. And that was a long time ago. Uh, to this particular poll and how Beto is doing, Brother Robert O'Rourke from El Paso is all the numbers that Mike has pontificated on are right, and some are worrisome more so than others. Um, but I dug in a little bit, and there was uh, uh, Patrick from the Texas Tribune who Mike uh, was uh, talking uh, to earlier on Twitter, uh, put out the Latino numbers from this, which are the most concerning to me. And Mike to give him credit, and I hate, with a big H-A-T-E, hate, to give Mike Madrid credit <laughs> on anything. Uh, he wisely has said that uh, Beto has to do really, re- blow it out. He said, Mike Madrid says, Beto's got to blow it out with Latinos if he's going to win, and he's got to overperform with these white folks who have been carrying the party, even though we talked love to talk about the Latino vote, and it's super important. But right now, the numbers with Beto and with Abbott is Beto's winning. That's the good news. Democrats can have a parade. They can shoot off fireworks. Beto is winning, and Beto is winning by 10 points with Latinos in this poll, 39% for Abbott, 49% for Beto. Now, before you start sending Christmas presents to all the Democrats in Texas, this is not good numbers. These are not good numbers at all. And he has to do a lot to get the numbers where he needs to. And if he does, it does significantly help close the six-point gap that is there. And the only way he can close it is changing the Latino vote numbers and probably moving some moderate uh, white women in the suburbs around different social issues. So 49 to 39 is not good anytime 
any, anytime with a big A-N-Y, that will be all the spelling girls and boys for tonight. But anytime a Republican's getting close to 40% of the vote, Democrats ain't going to be winning any of those elections. Because we need to keep Republicans down around the 30 margins, the Barack Obama 2012 numbers. We got to do that, and we got to have the Democratic numbers way more up around 60. And I would say 65, 68, if you want me to even be comfortable. But 49 is no good. And another thing that was really uh, interesting was the generic ballots amongst Latino voters on do you support the Democratic or the Republican House member in your area. No names mentioned. Again, Republicans at 39, but Democratic congressional candidates were two points lower than Beto at 47. That's a real problem for Democrats. So again, and I'm not trying to just promote the Latino Vote podcast here, but the crux of the problem in Texas for Beto are these underperforming Latino lagging numbers. It's great that he's winning. He could be more underwater. And I actually thought he may be more underwater. Greg Abbott kicks his campaign off in McAllen, Texas, and just announces, let me say it before Madrid does, almost $3 million of spending earlier than any Republican in the state has in a long time. So they're trying to soften these numbers. And now I see why they are. And for good reason, because if that Republican number creeps up to 40, 42, 43, you can put a knife in this baby because it's done. So Chuck, what do you, okay. One, that's exactly why I needed to have you on the show. And, and, and here, here's the thing. We're also talking to the guy that can fix it. Right, because there's not a lot, and this is my this is my speculation. But again, I I I I used to work for a Texas firm back in 2000. I was involved with with W stuff um, before he became president when he was governor. Um, so, but but I but but it's been a long time, and I'm I'm nowhere near the expert that that you are. Is the softening there with Latinos and Hispanic voters? Can that be fixed by organizing, or is it a Beto problem, or is it just a, a Democrat generic ballot problem, or, or what is it? How do you fix it? Beto calls, Beto calls you today and says, Rocha, get down here. I need your help. Fix it. What do you tell him to do? Well, the first thing I would say is if organizing won this thing, it would, it would be we'd be calling Beto O'Rourke Senator O'Rourke because I not have I have not seen a better organizing campaign than what he ran in his Senate race. He truly ran a true great, with a big G, uh, organizing campaign. That wasn't the reason for his failure. He did a good job at organizing in mid-sized cities across Texas. Look, uh, girls and boys on the Twitters, everybody works in Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio and Dallas. That's where all the people live. But there's a ton of mid-sized cities that have no Democratic infrastructure, like Lubbock, Waco, Nacogdoches, Tyler, Galveston, El Paso, Midland, Odessa, McAllen, Brownsville. I could go on. All these cities have over 100,000 people, Mike, and nobody ever does nothing in any of them. Well, Beto O'Rourke would put up pop-up offices in these places when he was running for Senate last time, hence why he got so close. The reason Beto lost that race was not because he didn't do an organizing campaign. It was because he just did an organizing campaign. And when uh, Senator Cruz went up on TV and Beto had the money to match him, they chose not to match him and got outspent four to one in the last four weeks, which caused him to lose. In my humble opinion, there can be arguments, and this is not a slight towards Beto. It's just how he ran his campaign. I just told you, he lifted the entire state with his grassroots operation and actually helped us win more state house races than we had won in 20 years. Now, to your point now, what would he do now? Well, it's July, July 4th, and he's got 10, 15, I don't know, millions of dollars. He could start having these conversations with Latinos outside of just the organizing that we know he will do in a decent way because he's already done it once. So he needs to be sending more bilingual communication to these voters, mainly hyper-focused on drop-off Latino voters in dense areas with male digital ads, and if you can't afford to run TV right now this early, be running that super cheap Spanish radio, getting ahead of Abbott and blaming him for the outages, blaming him for the shooting, 
blaming him for the cost of bread in Texas because he shut down the border. There's so much red meat there that you need to lay a hand on him in Spanish and English in a cost-effective way that will work. Uh, and that's that's how you would bring these numbers back up to where you need to see it. And, and Chuck, are you seeing that? Because, like, let, let, let me just let, let me let me that that's going to be the question. But let me set this up a little bit because, again, you're a good Democrat. I'm a good Republican. We've gone to war against each other before. We agree on a lot more things politically than not, at least from from a campaign perspective. But policy differences, I don't think we could find a single thing to agree on. But here's where I learn a lot from you. If I'm Abbott, everything you said is a hundred percent correct. It's 100% correct, including and especially the fact that Beto's got to overperform. He can't just win 55% of the Hispanic vote. He's got to get into the 60s or pretty darn close, okay? And so what Abbott does is he takes a look at this special election in Texas 34 where this crazy right-winger Myra Flores just picks up this seat with incredibly low turnout. And what they say is, you know what? The Democrats are still sleeping at the switch. They still haven't figured this out. Everything Chuck Rocha just said is exactly right, and they're still not doing it. So what does Abbott do? He announces a $2.8 million buy to do exactly what you just said. And, brother, I love the fact that you just said this because Spanish radio is, is the – anybody who's worked with, with the community knows that's the trick. You can flood the airwaves on cheap Spanish radio and make a huge impact into the community. And it, most, most consultants don't mean anything to disrespect, but most white consultants, Republicans and Democrats, have no idea – but anybody who knows the community knows you can go in there and saturate and with a with a with a, not a lot of money make huge inroads on Spanish language radio and suddenly the community's all a buzz about it and that's exactly what Abbott's doing. He's running this offensive strategy. He's making the investments now to keep Beto from catching uh, fire in an area where he's got to overperform. And I can't for the life of me see O'Rourke's campaign responding. Tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. Well, we don't know everything they're doing on the ground, but from 30,000 feet, uh, you know, they are not. uh, But, you know, they're trying to make strategic decisions in a campaign that has limited money in a place that where you spend a million. Well, it's just like California, Mike. If you spend a million dollars on TV in Houston, it's a week and a half. Like it's nothing. So they're trying to figure out how to maximize every dollar. And I assume and I don't know that they're trying to do that through what we call relational organizing, where they have a ton of volunteers, and he does have a ton of volunteers calling and texting people, which is super important, back to my original point. But what worries me is that he's not up on any kind of media yet, but again, he doesn't have Greg Abbott's money, but finding cost-effective ways to do it, and I think the other thing uh, that is, is it needs to be said here is that I don't know the consultants working for him. I know some of his team members and his team members are good and they're operatives and they're people of color. They're all they're from Texas. They're the things that you would want. He just announced a coordinated director. So I think that the only thing missing here, because he is making up room and you can see him if this poll is correct. And I'm with you. I think it's a good poll is he needs to be doing some more bilingual communication. And this is my last warning to their campaign. And I'm not working for them. I would work for them. I got nothing against Beto O'Rourke is that watch how whatever media consultant or male consultants that you hire, they'll be from out of state. And when they want to do these bilingual pieces, there needs to be a local set of eyes on it to make sure that it's culturally respectful and culturally competent or you'll shoot yourself in the foot by showing up wrong in a lot of these places, Mike. It's like showing up in East L.A., different than showing up in Oakland in the same Latino community, but they're different. I, I was going to say, my first, when I first got into San Antonio and was doing the, the mayor's race back in the day, I, I, you could just feel the air is different. It's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know Hispanic voters, I know Mexican-American voters, but that doesn't mean I know San Antonio Mexican-American voters or I know Hispanic voters in the Rio Grande Valley, right? These are different voters, and you've got you've to – having that deep knowledge only gets you so far. You've got to have boots on the ground to give you some of that local flavor. I think that's fantastic advice. I'm going to ask a, a question that came in in writing, um, and it comes from Cap, who says – who asks, We kept hearing that Texas was getting close to being in play in 2020. How could it not be in play in 2022 with Abbott, Uvalde, Dobbs, et cetera? How are numbers comparing to 2020, and is it that Biden had more support than Beto or that Abbott has more support than Trump? 
Man, what a great question. Do you mind if I take a jump at this one real quick, Chuck? Do it, do it, do it. All right, brother. So here's the way I see Texas. And this is why when I was with the Lincoln Project, we invested real heavily in Arizona early, came into Georgia late, and closed loose watchers, people front row later with two million dollars into Texas to try to push the case. Couldn't get he felt not just sure we felt in Texas, I still think it was the right. The strate- uh, think I still think it was the right strategic decision. But I want to explain why we were looking at pushing Texas into that blue column, and the answer was this: If you look back from the 2008-2012, in each one of those three states. Arizona, Georgia, and Texas. Each election cycle, as they got closer to 2000, to the uh, 2020 race, were, were incrementally by a point or two points, slowly closing the gap. They were trending towards a bluer position, certainly towards purple. And it's why we were able to flip on the national scale, Georgia coming in late and Arizona coming in late. The hope was Texas would get there too. But something happened in Texas. Something happened in Texas that did not happen in Georgia or in Arizona. And Chuck was doing some work on this in Georgia. I was doing some work on this in Arizona. Chuck may have been in Arizona, too. We can both talk about this. And that is the Hispanic vote largely got squirrely. Most Democrats who believe that Georgia's gonna, or that Texas is going to go blue and have been saying it for the past six or eight years have been predicating that belief on significant overperformances Chuck and I were talking about with Hispanic voters. The problem is in 2020, those voters went rightward. Not huge, but measurable. And if Hispanic voters don't give you the overperformance that you need to get, it doesn't matter how well you do with independence. There aren't enough Republican white suburban women outside of Austin or Dallas or, or Houston to, to win over if you're not getting the margins that you need with the Hispanic voter. And that's what happened. That's what happened in 2020. We moved enough uh, white Republican suburbanites into the wind column. That's what we're trying to do with the Lincoln Project. We were concerned, because, and Chuck and I were talking about this on a daily basis during the 2020 cycle. I'd call him and say, brother, you've seen the same problems I'm seeing? And he'd say, I'm seeing the same problems you're seeing. And that is there was this squishiness with Hispanic voters. The Democrats were not getting the margins that they needed. And as a result... They were not getting, uh, they, they were not able to pull taxes off. And it's why there is this potential, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but the potential is there could be a backslide back to a redder position if Hispanics keep this rightward drift and the Democrats don't show up and start fighting for that vote share in a way that they never have before. Chuck, what are your thoughts? I agree with that. And I think that. Uh, a lot of that was predicated, that talk around the overperformance of Latinos, which has to be one of the calculuses. And most of that's based off of the, the quickness. Uh, Madrid likes to talk about uh, Teixeira's uh, thing he wrote years ago saying that, you know, that demographics is going to be a destiny in Texas, and that's why they turn blue. But the problem is uh, that demographics in Texas is moving rapidly, but because they're let's get let's get under the hood like we do in the Latino vote. Even though these Latinos are turning eighteen quicker than any other folks in the state besides maybe AAPI, uh, in campaigns with the same establishment consultants running every campaign the exact same way, I can tell you because I've been in those rooms and made this alternative argument is they don't go talk to those kids. And they don't talk to them because, in their mind, they are infrequent voters. And on paper, by God, they are infrequent voters. I don't take that away. But if you don't ever try to have a conversation with them, they will continue to be infrequent until they reach 30, when they get married and they start getting engaged. And they've never really heard from the Democratic Party because they weren't inside the prime voter universe. And so they're more adhered to listen to alternative messaging a la a populist carnival barker like Donald Trump, who could say, hey, we're going to drain the swamp. We're going to get rid of all of this stuff, these regulations that are holding us back, get government out of your life. And the things that half of which were lies are not true. Keep jobs in America as he stands there in a made in China tie like these things. But if nobody's talked to them, this is my argument to my own party. 
I made a male universe today in the state of Vermont for a congressional IE. In almost every male universe that I do in a Democratic primary these days, I have Luis and the team add in every newly registered Democrat, if they if they registered as a Democrat or somebody modeled in that way, so they get some kind of communication. But why in the hell am I having to do the Democratic Party's work for them when I'm out here running IEs just to start including those universes of young people? Hence why Texas is not bright blue right now. Folks, you're listening to Mic Drop on the Call-In app, uh, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Specifically, Spotify and Apple uh, podcasts really market the uh, the um, content creators here on on Colin aggressively. And so, if you're not subscribing directly here in the Colin app, find it wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I've I've been bragging to Chuck about the quality um, of the listener base that I have and the social media following that I have because I'm absolutely convinced that the folks who who follow the content that I'm putting out. Um, are, are much more likely to lift up the hood and look under what's going on to understand the dynamics of campaigns, what's going on with polling and the strategic uh, uh, decisions that campaigns are making, the messaging, everything that's going out with the fundamentals of the campaign. So I'm expecting some good questions, guys. I know that it uh, might make you a little bit nervous to jump in here and ask some questions. you got a really bright mind here with Chuck, who knows Texas as well as anybody. Um, if you could... Um, either just jump up onto the platform and, and ask to be a, to speak and ask your questions. If you're a little bit nervous about it, feel free to use the chat room um, and just write those questions out. It kind of helps us move uh, the discussion going forward. One more quick thing on Beto, and then Chuck, I know you've got some time limits. I do want to talk about Gavin Newsom a little bit, and if there's any questions about Gavin, folks, go ahead and jump in with that too. Um, Gavin uh, or Beto, and, and I've, I've never seen Beto O'Rourke and Gavin Newsom in the same room, by the way. I'm convinced they might be the same person. No one's ever seen them shaking hands. There's no pictures. If I'm wrong, somebody tweeted out there because I want to see it, but they strike me as awfully similar. You got a couple guys with the exact same profile. Progressives can't love them enough. Um, I, I'm convinced that, that Gavin's, you know, posturing for something bigger at the moment while, while Beto's, I think, struggling a little bit to get into this, into this race. Um, only 6% in this poll, only 6% of Republicans said that the availability of guns was part of the problem with mass shootings. Talk to me about the, 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 the culture of... Did I get cut off there, Chuck? You did, uh, but I think I, I, I think I got the crux of what you were asking. You can hear me okay, correct? I can. You're good. You're clean. So I think that the, um, you know, the gun issue is a sticky wicket, as they say, not in Texas, but somewhere I heard that before. And I think it sounds funny, a sticky wicket, because I ain't sure what that is. But, uh, you know, in Texas, it's just different. And uh, I have definitely have aggravations around this issue. And let me be forthright. I grew up in Texas. I have owned a gun since I was 11 years old. I got a 410 single shot shotgun. Uh, then later in my teenage years, I got a 22. And then when I was 16, I think I got a 223 caliber deer rifle, which is the same caliber gun that was used in all of these mass shootings. It's the bullet that you put into one of these uh, assault rifles. So I know the armory well, not like a military man, but I grew up respecting guns, having guns in my bedroom locked in a gun closet, right? So there's a, and everybody in Texas understands this. So if you just talk about guns in general, you're going to lose. But if you talk about, safety, kids in school, and you put faces on it. This week, I released, not this week, but last week, at the end of last week, we released the first ever Spanish language gun ads calling Republicans out on being hypocrites around assault rifle bans and that this piece of legislation didn't go far enough and tying the NRA to the Republican Party in Spanish. Uh, you know, I was really aggravated in Uvalde that folks in Uvalde, 80% Latino community, they couldn't even get a press conference in Spanish. And I just feel like that's what happens a lot of times with our local governments, with lots of things where they just leave our folks out. Do they all speak Spanish? No. And by leaving them out, say that they're being left behind? No. But they deserve some respect, for God's sakes. All these children had just died, and it was incredibly disrespectful. But in Texas, it's different. And I think that there's a way, as a one big problem with Democrats is there's not very many Democratic consultants who ever owned a gun. 
There, there is very few Democratic consultants that I consider dirt road Democrats, where the directions to your home included, and then you turned off the paved road. Well, that's me. And there's just a small number, like maybe two or three out of thousands, that understand those cultures to be able to show up and be nobody in where I grew up. Whatever argue, you got to have a a, a semi-automatic, multi-chambered uh, thing to shoot a deer or to protect your house. I can tell you, and anybody who's got any kind of a even D minus in redneck knows that if you want to protect your house, you have a shotgun that sprays bullets that show short, you know, all the things. I don't need to get into that here, but there's ways to do this with nuance and you should be talking about school safety and children. Got a D minus in redneck. I love that. I'm going to steal that from you. I think mm-hmm. did, 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 did Beto saying we're going to come for your guns. Did that hurt? I think it hurt him the first time he did that for sure, right? But I think it helps him, you know, so he has these things that hurt him, and that hurts him, I think. But it also helps him when he shows up at Greg Abbott's press conference. You can say it was a stunt, but at least he takes it on and acts like he's got some backbone because Mike knows this because we talk about it on the Latino Vote podcast. You can be found on Apple Podcasts. But I talk about this all the time that Democrats need to get tougher and get a backbone and be just as mean and evil as those Republicans, present company not included, some, <laughs> uh, but grow you know, uh, a spine and, 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 and be adamant about standing up for your positions. And if you disagree with the governor on gun safety, then put it, get in his face and tell him that without being you know, disrespectful or confrontational or any physically, I'm not saying do physical harm, but I'm saying stand for your issues. You know, I don't, I'm not sure where the criticism of that came from. I, I thought it was a brilliant tactical move. And I, I think his numbers have probably moved in the right direction as a result because people are looking for somebody who is going to stand up and just say enough. And it's not even necessarily just a Democrat thing, although I think it's particularly a Democrat thing at this point. I think Democrats for the past year have been saying, where's the fight? Where's the fighters? Like you were saying, I think your, your, your famous line of saying Democrats bring a policy handbook to a fist fight. You know, that's exactly right. Is one thing I learned on the Lincoln Project is Republicans, Democrats just fight differently. And if you're going to fight, if you're going to scrap in Texas, you're going to have to fight like Republicans. You're going to have to fight the way they, they fight. And I think that's, I, I, I think Beto did, uh, did himself a big favor that day. I, I know that there was a lot of criticism and people maybe saw it differently. I actually thought it was something that, that benefited his campaign. I thought it was a good move. It, it, it was, and to our point, right, like, A, I definitely have a philosophy about why Democrats are not very good fighters, because if you saw our consultant class of folks, I can promise you, ain't none of them ever been in a fight. Yeah. A, B, <laughs> right. uh, we worry so much about correctness, and we worry so much about, like, we can't uh, even stretch the truth a little bit as Democrats. When you watch Republicans take one issue, you could have three Democrats out of 290 say defund the police. And then all of a sudden every Democrat in America is for defund the police. That's brilliant. It's the same way when Rick Scott put out memos uh, that the majority leader didn't want him to saying that we needed to cut and, and start rolling back social programs. Man, we should have that on every ad again, showing that Republicans hate old folks. And we're going to take your social security because one of them said it. You don't see that enough. And we, because that's the game they play, and I, me, and only a very few groups of us play by that same handbook, and we have had lots of success. I'm going to shift over now because we're about halfway through this episode, um, and I want to get to. And I know Chuck that you've got some time constraints, so if you need if you need to go, you you got to go. But we'd love to have you stay as long as we can. I want to switch uh, to to Beto's twin brother Gavin now. Gavin Newsom here in, in California, or not here, he's, he's actually in Montana at the moment, but the governor of my state, uh, California. Um, l- let me do a quick setup here. And let me say this. Um, I, I have been both a, a supporter of Gavin Newsom's when I think he has done things right, and I have been a detractor and a critic when I think that he has done things wrong. I think that that's okay. I think that's the way democracy is supposed to work. I've certainly been critical of my own party. So let me just say, um, I, I'm going to be critical of, of people and things in the process when I see them going wrong. Um, I'm using this as a setup because just 48 hours ago, I came out and defended, um, to a lot of criticism, Gavin Newsom's ad placement in Florida uh, talking about freedom and basically 
taken a shot at Ron DeSantis, clearly, um, as DeSantis is rising up in the polls against Donald Trump in the Republican primary, Gavin Newsom says, if the Democratic leadership in Washington, D.C., meaning the president and his good friend Kamala Harris, are not going to take him on, I'm going to take him on. I thought it was a brilliant political stroke. Okay, I thought it was smart. Dude spends $100,000 in Florida, which doesn't go all that far in Florida, folks, but he gets probably 5 or $10 million worth of national coverage because he does it. Smart move. Smart move. 48 hours later, okay, after announcing a travel ban that the state of California is not going to allow any taxpayer-funded dollars to be spent in travel. Them. He, he quietly uh, heads off to Montana. His wife, Jennifer Siebel, only has a compound out there. It's not like a timeshare condo that chuck and i would rent this is this is a multi you know multi-gazillion dollar montana ranch where the family meets and he comes under criticism for it i think i think legitimate first of all i don't think this affects the dynamic of any race i think his poll numbers probably go up after this the more attention that is focused on him but the reality is i think it was a dumb political move gavin newsom has this reputation out there he has a reputation of being aloof he has this very strong reputation of, of, of having others live under laws that he's not living under um, and, and kind of doing his own thing despite what other people should be doing. That's his reputation in California. It just is. Love it or hate it. it just, that's, that's just the way that it is. Now, his, his placing ads and the, 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 cons, the, the consequent media frenzy about this Montana situation is clearly – the, the, the media, nationally and in the state, trying to figure out the one big question. And that is, is this guy running for president? It's not atypical when a first-term president isn't polling terribly well to have questions about the presidency come up. That's part of the Beltway game. That's part of the way D.C. works. It's usually focused on throwing the vice president uh, out of the you know, moving car. Mike Pence went through it. Dan Quayle certainly went through it. Okay, uh, Cheney did not because Cheney was really the president, of course. Um, and I, I think that you know Kamala has had a really rough time in terms of of the media narrative as being the vice president. We, that's a different show for a different day. I think there's there's some that's warranted from it. There's some that's not warranted from it. But bottom line is this: Biden's numbers are not good. Democrats are starting to hit the panic button for whatever reason. Democrats, by the way, they're a little bit, they're, they're a lot more squirrely than Republicans are. I think it was a David Pluff that used to, during the Obama administration, that would say, you know, stop, stop the bedwetting, all the bedwetters talking about how nervous Democrats are about this stuff. You know, re- Republicans, I'm not saying Republicans don't get nervous or antsy, but they, they react very differently. There's this sort of doomsday that kind of comes over Democrats that I still haven't quite gotten used to or quite understand. But I do know what Pluff was saying when he used that terminology talking about it. It's like, things are not as bad as they feel they are. Quit being so scared. Grab a pitchfork and start marching forward. And so my question, Chuck, to you is, what, are you, what is your sense of, of Gavin? You've done a lot of California work. You know a lot of people around him. Uh, you introduced me to Jason Rodriguez, who's a phenomenal political operative, good friend of yours, who's one of Gavin's closest guys. What's your sense? Where are things at with, with Gavin Newsom? I think, the, <laughs> I think the thing that's, again, things that me and you know that other people don't know in the know is that I think the fun, funniest thing is that Y'all should know that the same political team that runs Gavin Newsom's operation runs Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. It's the same consultant. There's not many consultants in the Democratic Party. So people keep talking about Gavin maybe wanting to run for president when I was like, well, his consultants are Kamala's consultant. And if something happened and Biden didn't run and Kamala for sure would run and the governor would run, then there's only one consulting firm. And I guess they'd have to, they could divide up or pick which one or somebody would have to do it. That'd be an interesting conversation. Uh, I just leave that there for y'all to realize my next point, which is when, whether Biden wants to run or doesn't want to run, I'm telling y'all he's, he wants to run, uh, barring some major health crisis, he's running. And also 
there is a small group of people in our party that make the decisions. And they made the decisions that Biden was going to be the nominee. Uh, they made a decision that they didn't want Bernie to be the nominee. So they made the calls to consolidate the entire field after we blew it out in Nevada and then got our butt whooped in South Carolina uh, because, you know, that's the power that they, they wield. When I ran against Hillary Clinton the first time with Bernie, we couldn't find anybody to work for us because, again, if you're not in that system, you don't get work. And so um, there's no doubt that he will put together a campaign and a decent campaign. The real question is, does it get bad enough to where some of the top operatives and people who really know how to do this work actually form together a real campaign and not just something on paper to be the alternative, some congressman who wants to run or some you know other folks who don't have the money or infrastructure to actually build something. Uh, there's definitely already a lot of chatter amongst lots of young people and progressives who already want somebody else to run. I know there's at least two or three candidates out there sniffing around. I've had them talking to me or trying to engage me, and I'm not engaging anybody until after the midterm elections. It's a long time. I've been a Joe Biden supporter. I support him now. But things can always change, and I want to make sure that Donald Trump is not the president. And so that means having the strongest candidate, and that I'll cross that bridge when the time is right. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, one of my best focus groups, Mike, is my 30-year-old fiance, who's a black woman from D.C. who don't take no shit from nobody. And I was telling her tonight that me and you were going to talk about the good governor. And she was like, is he running for president? He'd probably make a pretty good president. I've heard good <laughs> things about him. And I was like, oh, here we go. Focus group at the house. I got to tell you, uh, Gavin Newsom is, is he's, he is, um, he is perhaps the most talented Democratic politician of, of his generation. Um, there, there are, there are something about him where detractors who don't like him really just hate him. Um, but people who like him, um, really like him. And for that, that casual observer in politics, like your fiance, there's this kind of sense. I like him. He seems like he, he, he looks presidential. He sounds presidential. He's got this capable, competent cadence. Um, and I, I think he's got a, a really intuitive sense of not just where the Democratic base is at, but where, where the, the overall public is at. And I think one of the things that I admire about Gavin Newsom, is, is, although I disagree with him a lot on policy and I disagree with a lot on where he prioritizes his energy, um, he's not afraid to, um, to call out. He's, he's not somebody who's trying to bring everybody together. And I know that may sound bad, but I think that's a necessary quality at this time in American history. There's just some bad shit going on in our society. And, and a lot of it, some of it's just not redeemable and it doesn't want to be redeemable. There, there are some people that just don't want to be brought around. They're not people that want a seat at the table. They're going to come up and like, you know, knock everything off the table and chop it in half and then light it on fire and, and, and tell you that they're the patriot. They're the, they're the Americans. They're the ones that are doing everything right. And at a certain point, people, I think, have got to say what we need is leaders who, who aren't going to put up with that bullshit anymore. We're going to draw the line and say, you know what, I, I've had enough. And I think that that's really one of the key distinctions between um, a, a Gavin Newsom and a lot of a lot of Democratic politicians. There's just this natural, innate need, I think, for most Democratic politicians to say, you know what, let, let, we got to figure this out together. Let's bring everybody together. It's 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 a total part of Joe Biden's DNA. It's the politician that he's been for decades. I respect it. I admire it. I wish it was still those times, but it's not. And I think that Gavin Newsom, one, he, he gets that. I think he trolls a little bit more than he ought to as the governor of California. I wish he, was, he had his head in the game here and started to focus on some issues. But I also respect and understand why he's trying to raise his profile at the national level, regardless of whether he's going to run or not. Now, to that point, today is the first day ever that um, Gavin Newsom has moved into the number two spot in the betting markets behind Joe Biden. Okay, He's passed Kamala Harris. That, that has not happened at any point in, in the president, in, in this administration, past two years, three years, two years, 
what are we at? 18 months, whatever the hell we're at. And it's not happened until today. And it's happening because Gavin is leaning into these fights. And you'll notice he's leaning into cultural fights. It's very important to understand. Very important to understand. He's talking about guns. He's talking about women's rights to choose. He has a history of doing this in 2004 as the mayor of San Francisco to John Kerry's eternal damnation. John Kerry still doesn't like Gavin Newsom because uh, because uh, Gavin Newsom legalized same-sex marriages in San Francisco for the first time ever in the middle of a presidential campaign when John Kerry was trying to win some of these red states in the Midwest where that didn't play that well back then, doesn't play that well now, frankly. And that really, up uh, in John Kerry's view, upended that race. D- Gavin Newsom has had his finger on the pulse of where America is going for a very long time. He's, he's just got that talent. He's got that skill. It's, it's kind of who he is. Uh, and he's leaning into the fight. I'll say this, and I'm going to go after this comment. I appreciate being on here in the invite. Um, I, there's one overarching thought that I keep letting folks, and you've got great followers on Twitter and folks who engage this, is that, there is going to be a dramatic change in the Democratic Party in not the next 10 years, but the next five years. Every one of our leaders are in their 80s or in their very, very late 70s. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, uh, the, uh, the top three House Democrats are all in their 80s. And uh, there's just going to be a change and we'll have an opportunity and, and and the democratic party is hungry the activists out there for a new breath and i think that they're just like any other uh puppy out there that'll follow any kind of shot bright shiny light right now and i think gavin is that at the moment i think there could be other folks but they will be a i used to be a big this is more surprising to y'all but I used to be a big wrestling fan. And in Texas, it's wrestling, not wrestling or however y'all call it. And I mean where we do the sleeper hold and throw people off the top rope, not that thing where you scramble around on the ground, but real wrestling. Uh, and, and where you have a battle royale, and the last man over the top rope is the winner. And I just think that there's a lot of people going to be vying for that spotlight on who's the leader. Sure, there'll be a lot of, of, of spotlight on Mr. Jeffries from uh, New York, who is said to be the next speaker, African-American brother from uh, from from Brooklyn. Uh, but there are other rising stars like Ruben Gallego and Tony Cardenas and Annette Barragan. And obviously there's, you know, all these other folks. But it'll be interesting uh, who in the party keep that will be the most things as I get in the twilight of my consulting career in the next 10 years. That will be the dramatic change within my party. That's a heck of a good observation. And Chuck, thank you for your time. It's a great note to end on. Appreciate it, my brother. Um, always, always great to have you on and sharing your thoughts. I'm sure it's appreciated. People are already sending in notes. Follow Chuck on Twitter, by the way. You'll get more of this stuff, at Chuck Rocha on Twitter. He's a great follow. Um, and you'll be hearing more from us in the near, near future. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Mike. You can turn my camera on now. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. Take it easy. Uh, folks, any other questions? We've got a good group today. There's got to be some questions that will help me uh, kind of keep the flow going to whether you want to talk a little bit more about Gavin Newsom, whether or not he's running for president. We did get one good question related to um, uh, the fact that I do compare O'Rourke and um, and uh, Gavin Newsom um, so much because not only they look, I think, strikingly similar uh, I think they, 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 they posit the same sort of uh, policy issues. I don't think there's too much disagreement between the two. And if that's the case, Mike, then why is one doing so well and why is the other not doing well at all? And let me set this up a little bit. Let's, re, let's be mindful of something, that whatever happens in November, and history and data matter, evidence matters, I'm still of the belief that the Republicans will pick up a majority in the House. Senate, you know, is not so much. I think it will be a smaller majority than if you asked me a month ago. I think the Democrats are closing the gap, but I do believe that if it were, the election were held next Tuesday, that the Republicans would pick up a majority. The other thing I believe with a quite a, a high degree of confidence is Gavin Newsom is going to be the only Democrat on the next Wednesday morning who will have won by 20 points or more. Granted, it's California. Granted, it's blue. 
but he's going to have a national platform to articulate a vision of what the Democratic Party is going to look like and what it should look like and what they should be fighting on. And the truth of the matter is he's already begun that. That's what these ads in Florida were about. And I think they were smart. I think they were smart. If you think that they had anything to do, anything at all to do with his current gubernatorial campaign, I think you're completely missing the point. It has nothing to do with that. He's not even paying attention to the Republican opposition. He doesn't need to, and he's not going to. He's sitting on many tens of millions of dollars, and what he's going to be doing, as I think he should be, is articulating what the Democratic Party needs to look like going forward. And I'm so glad that Chuck ended this, uh, this, this, uh, his part of the conversation the way that he did. There is a generational change that is happening in the Democratic Party. It's going to be a sea change in the next two or four years. I mean, some of these members are, are just really, really uh, old. And with, if, there is a, if there is a change, if, if the Republicans do take over, I think you're going to see a lot more retirement from Democrats, especially older ones who don't want to you know, travel to be in the minority and have to deal with this kind of a fight level when a lot of younger activists, uh, even more progressive Democrats, are chomping at the bit. And I think Gavin Newsom is probably the single best person in the country that is positioned to articulate what the party needs to be for the next generation of Americans. I don't think that's going away. I think that's a big part of who he's going to be and how this is going to play out and how it's going to be unfolded. And I think it will be cemented again by the fact that he's going to win over large and a time that Democrats have stature of victories. And I is a small bit of difference. Um, that's why he's leaning into this. And I think he's, he, it's smart. It's smart tactically. They clearly, they clearly need to tighten up their game a little bit. I think this Montana stuff is an unnecessary distraction. Is it going to matter in two days? It's not. Um, the people that hate him for it, hate him for it. The people that love him for it, love him for it. Um, it is a sign that they do need to tighten up their game and get, um, get, get back on track because he, he did have such an exceptional rollout that people, even the betting markets, were taking notice and more people are more inclined to believe that he, more than Kamala Harris, uh, will be the next president of the United States. Um, and again, I, I think I think so much of this is really dependent on whether or not um, the Republicans take a majority. Because if the Republicans do take a majority, I really do believe that that cements um, Joe Biden's reelection chances. Um, I believe that. It's, it's so hard to beat an incumbent president. Um, as somebody who was involved with a campaign who just did that, obviously with the Lincoln Project, I can tell you it's not, it's not easy. And before that, the last time that it happened was obviously with Bill Clinton beating George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, which was really a statistical and historic uh, anomaly. Um, th- that does not happen very often, if at all. So um, with that, uh, any questions? I saw somebody that was up on the platform. Did somebody want to ask a question? There you are. M. M. Regular yes, yes. follower. I have so, a question. So good to hear from you. Always got the good questions. And what do you think? What's on your mind today? Okay, my question is to do with the Latino vote. Yeah. Um, and I've listened to your podcast with Chuck Rocha. I could mm-hmm. listen to his accent all day long. I love it. <laughs> love it. But my question is, I'm in South Florida. And so how in the world, I have two questions, but the first one is, why is the Cuban population seem to be so overrepresented when people are talking about Latino voters? I've heard you comment on that, but how did that start? Like, what what motivated that? That's a great question, and I got a lot of pushback on that from some Cubans, uh, Cuban Republicans who were saying kind of, how dare you, you know, your Cuban phobia or whatever it was. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, look, this is a real thing. So it, it, it's for two reasons, and here's why. By the way, the Cuban-American population uh, is about 3% of the whole Latino population, Okay. Uh, it's not. It's very. Uh, it, it's minuscule, but but it is located geographically in perhaps the most ideal situation you can imagine, which is in a key swing state in Florida. They concentrate largely as Republicans, Latinos as Republicans, and that makes them a significant player in the Republican Party because the Republicans need them desperately to be to be uh, competitive statewide, and they also need them to be competitive nationally. And as a result, the stature that they have achieved 
um, is, is, is really, and you use the right term, it's overrepresented. That's not a criticism. And I think my Cuban brothers and sisters need to have their place at the table and, and ought to you know, define their Latinidad, their Latino mm-hmm. uh, identity as much as anybody else. Their story, their struggle as a wonderful American story needs to be told. But, but let's call it for what it is, is, is the amount of attention that the Cuban vote gets is ridiculously disproportional to the share of what it actually is. Now, that's the first piece. The second piece, M, is this. Being on the East Coast, they, and, and Puerto Ricans in New York, have had uh, a, 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 um, the ability, this is going to sound a little bit silly, but if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, the ability to be on talk shows and on the media narrative at the same time zone as where the center of our media culture lives. This may sound odd to you if you're on the East Coast, but it makes perfect sense in any other time zone is if you're going to be on the uh, you know uh, morning talk shows, political talk shows that start at 7 a.m. Eastern. I mean, that's 4 a.m. in California time, <laughs> which is the, the largest Latino population state. That's not going to happen. No one's going to wake up to be on the show. And certainly no one's going to wake up that early to be to, to watch the show. And so you, you've had for two reasons, a disproportionate amount of Cuban voices um, in the um, intermediate narrative uh, i think less so there's a lot more mexican-american voices now but since the 80s it's been overwhelmingly cuban because the, the cuban media narrative is is and if you look at the size of the population wealth uh, population is especially the fastest growing you cut out i don't know if others can hear you but you're completely gone for me M? Yes, you cut out for a minute there. I don't know if it was for everyone hello, or hello? just me. Yes. Oh, okay. Am I back? Yes. Okay, thanks. Yes. Sorry about that. Yeah, I was gonna. I was wrapping up by saying. Um, sorry, I was wrapping up by saying that the media narrative uh, is disproportionately Cuban, but that is coming back. I think into a more representative space. You're seeing a lot more Mexican American voices um, represented in media and in Congress. Thank you. That I would never have thought about the actual just time zone waking up and what time to be yeah. on a show. That's really interesting. My second kind of follow-up question is I teach English to adults and I have a lot of students who are Venezuelan in back. Mm-hmm. And the past few years have just been kind of shocking to lots of us. But one of the things that shocked me is I feel like people have had the absolute opposite reaction to some things than I expected. For example, when the pandemic started, I thought that the people who are like, you know, the preppers, I thought they would be all in. Like, mm-hmm. here's this virus. This is what we saved our canned food for. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And instead, they went the opposite way. And we're like, let's ignore this. The same thing with like Christians or mainstream Christianity. I kind of get it if they're behind someone like Joel Osteen. I mean, I don't, but I he's at least presenting the front of what it expects. But instead it was this person who was completely opposite anything you can find in any scripture, you know, just total. And working with the Venezuelans, I've sometimes seen kind of the same thing. There are people who I would be very against someone taking over the government and taking the government into its private hands, different things. But many of them very much supported Trump. I guess it's more of a psychological question than like maybe a demographic question, but what's happening there? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, and if I do cut out, let me, let me know too. Things seem to be getting a little bit choppy, unfortunately. But um, there, there are two things. One is kind of psychological and the other is demographic. And the demography is, 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 is I think, a lot more easily explained than what we're witnessing right now in this time period, especially as it relates to evangelical Christianity, which you and I have talked about um, at length, we've kind of had that, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this area, by this topic, because what what's really happening, in my estimation, is there's this need for community in a time when we're becoming more and more fragmented, and when technology has made it so easy for people communicating with us to really discern what our own likes and dislikes are mathematically, algorithmically, 
Uh, you know, and I certainly that's what I do for a living in politics. It's kind of frightening how different my profession has changed over the past 30 years. There's this real need to find community. And sometimes community is defined by what you are against. And, and this is a, a long sitting hypothesis that I've had, especially with evangelical Christianity. The evangelical Christian community is really defined by being against modernity, against social change. It's the preservation of tradition, and that has defined the evangelical community since the Scopes Monkey Trial in the 1800s or 1920s you know, here in the United States. It's well over a century. It's been documented that you know, the, the, the rejection of evolution is when this started discernibly in the United States. And there was a certain value. There was a certain value. There was a certain um, fealty demonstrated to believers who rejected science, who said, no, once you start going too far down that road, you take God out of the equation. And once that started to happen, you started to develop um, a different strain of Christianity than we had seen before. And it's one that through the use of, of, of social media and technology has been able to grow with the evangelical community as a base, but but even far beyond that. And that's really, I think, changed the way evangelical Christianity has come to be viewed because we're starting to see some anomalous data about evangelical Christians. So, for example, we've been running past the one-hour mark, so I'm going to okay, go ahead yes. and, and, and sign off. If there's any questions, guys, that anybody wants to follow up with, follow me on Twitter. Thanks for joining this episode of Mic Drop, and we'll talk to you guys next week.